Movies podcast hosted by a couple of your favorite people from Philadelphia. Uh, I am here with my co-hosts, Christine, Connor, and Dave. And of course, I'm Sam. And we are starting a brand new theme. We're talking about thuds and duds, movies that, at least for me, I once liked and now I like less. Not hate, not this one. I don't hate it, but uh, I like it a little bit less. Um, my pick is going to be one that we have to dive very, very deep into to, to, to really get to, to the meat of everything. But before we do that, how's everybody doing? And what have you seen recently that's been good, bad, or everything in between? Doing good. I've been watching a lot of movies recently. One movie I recently watched was the very first movie we talked about on this podcast. I am so sorry to tell you, Connor, but I finally watched the new Dread and was not my cup of tea. What I will say is that I appreciated the movie's simple plot. Like I, it felt kind of like a diehard in that, like it wasn't biting off a lot. It was all situated within one building and many floors and like one Dread operation, which I appreciated. But I just didn't give a shit about Dread, which is fine because you're not really supposed to like fully get into his the interworkings of his mind. But I didn't give a shit about his fellow operation person who was sort of supposed to be the heart of the movie. Uh, the slow-mo was dope, though. I loved all the slow-mo and love the colors, but I can't say that it I was. Yeah. But I appreciate it as a as a good action movie. <laughs> I mean, as a, as a as I can appreciate other people's uh, responses to it. I'll also say that it's like like Pat loves it, <laughs> and he was like, "I'm so excited for you to watch this movie." <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, no, it's not my cup of tea." But you know, we all come full circle on the pod. For um, maybe newer listeners who haven't listened to older episodes, it, our format used to be where only two people out of the original five watched the movie. Sometimes folks saw it in the past, you know, previously. Um, so there's so many movies that some of us haven't seen that we talked about, did a whole episode about. So I think it's interesting, Christine, that you went back three years later and finally watched the masterpiece that is uh, Dread. Maybe, you know what, maybe... I'll watch it again and I'll be like, wow, I, these are all the things that I was really missing. But um, I'm glad you clarified that, Connor, because it would have been, yes, we did change our format and I wasn't just pretending to have seen the movie <laughs> for our very first episode, not even having done my homework. <laughs> we did do a question about movies that you've pretended to have seen and, and told others that you did see. So we maybe did. that was the long con, Christine. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We should bring that question back. Do you have a different answer? (laughs) Continuing to lie to people about things. (laughs) Um, Every once in a while, I'll be driving and dread will just 
slide by my vision. I don't know why I, I I wasn't the one who watched it and I still haven't watched it, but I'll think about dread and I'll think about that episode in particular. And it, there's no reason, no rhyme, no reason for why it happens, but it happens at least once a month. I love that story more than anything. I finished one of my new, probably like top 10 TV shows of all time. And that was the Bravo original imposters. Uh, I mentioned this, I don't know, the last, maybe two or three episodes ago. Um, it's like a show about con people who, con people and people who get involved in the game. I mentioned that season one, I think I was like halfway through. Season one, I thought like start to finish was really great. And so I just watched, finished watching season two. And I'm glad that it's done because it ended on a high. And like it wrapped up arcs from season one with leaving some interesting, you know, possibilities for season three but it never happened and so i'm kind of glad that this new show that i found from a few years ago uh, was just two seasons and ended on a high note so i don't really think i can ask for more from imposters than that imposters is currently on netflix and i'd love to if any of our listeners ever watch it um, i think it's just two 10 episode seasons so pretty not too demanding to get through and i would love to hear the butter Cruise thoughts if you ever watch it or our listeners nice yeah, I have, um, I've been kind of sinking my teeth into uh, our selections for this current theme that again, being thuds and duds. Uh, so it's been a challenging couple of days, uh, I will say. And uh, what's ahead uh, may, may be a little bit challenging for uh, folks who have sensibilities, uh, film sensibilities as I do, at least for, for some of these movies. But uh, at any rate, I do want to say off the top before we dive into our first Thuds and Duds episode that uh, if anybody is a rabid fan or even casual fan of these movies, it's totally all right. It'll be interesting to see uh, what you folks think as well. So looking forward to uh, to hearing from you folks, especially as we dive into this uh, probably somewhat divisive but interesting theme. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. Yeah. Is this the first time we've ever really set out to just rip on movies? I, I think that it is, right? Pretty sure. Oh, well, Food Fight. Food Fight was kind oh, of that's true. understood to have been a, a punching match. Uh, but We did do uh, production disasters, but I feel like we covered mm. some sort of more beloved territory. But Or no, we well, we did a nice hit, kind of handful of <laughs> The movies. terrible movie that is Steven Spielberg's Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> oh right yeah we had yeah i think we that episode or that theme was interesting because we had you know classics and then we had fucking don's plum that was don <laughs> that was don's plum month right <laughs> yeah yeah it was oh god a whole month of don's <laughs> oh should we do don's plum back-to-back month That'd be great. I think we said most of what needs to be said. <laughs> uh, except, so, Butterfam, I don't know if we have ever talked about this on the actual show, but we've definitely talked about it in the group chat. Um, the guy responsible for Don's Plum actually tweeted back at us about the episode and was like, it wasn't a nightmare. It was the best time. And... He, he he offered to come on the show and talk about it. I just never followed up with him, which, um, you know, I, you know, maybe he'd still be, in, he probably would. Honestly, he probably would still come on the pod and, and give us his take. But I don't know if it's necessary. That being Dale Wheatley, yeah, who, uh, as a, a pretty uh, avid uh, 
avid listener of uh, all media that relates to Don's flow. May, may still be tuning in. So Dale, if you're listening, uh, thank you for the offer. Uh, we'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but like, do you really want to talk to us about it? Like that, like <laughs> that's on you, buddy. Anyway, I'm, I'm super excited for this theme. Uh, I think that it's very possible. My pick is the least controversial or, or sort of like maybe one of the only movies that can like still hold up and still kind of pass the test of today, maybe. Which also in that sense makes it the most controversial because it's probably yeah. the most still liked of the movies we'll be talking about. Ooh, good point. So what is my pick? It's Inception. It's 2010's Christopher Nolan's Inception. Um, I gotta have really complicated feelings about this movie, but um, just touching base here. Have we all seen Inception? This is no one's first go around. Christine, yeah. I have I no idea. I was, like, how to I was that. like shaking my head, and I was like, "That's in no way a clarified response." <laughs> I will speak. Yes, I have seen Inception multiple times. So no, this was not my first uh, go around. Yeah, it's one of the movies that was uh, available in theaters at the time that I worked at the King of Prussia movie theater uh, back in my back in my uh, my youth. And uh, yeah, I'd seen it a few times there and was really taken by it the first time. And uh, it was interesting going back to it each time because uh, it definitely lost favor for me for a long time. And I uh, really did not enjoy it after a certain point. But now... Um, a mix of mixed opinions. I saw Inception. This is my fourth time watching Inception. I know that because I saw it three times in theaters with three like different groups of friends. I've liked it each time less out of those original three. But this fourth time was an interesting rewatch. And I think this movie is better in light of a recent Nolan movie. Um, that I thought was far, far, far inferior to Inception in almost every way. Uh, Dave has requested, I think, if I'm reading his mind, that I not mention it. So no, go ahead. Be, <laughs> um, I think Tenet sucks so bad that Inception, um, while still a dud, is like not bottom tier Nolan anymore for me. Uh, I'd say I find them to be on relatively even footing now. <laughs> I was like, what movie is it? I was like really like hanging on every word you were saying, Connor. I forgot about that movie completely. <laughs> so it sounds like we all saw this movie when it was in theaters. Christine, is that true for you too? I'm pretty sure I saw it in theaters. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw it in theaters because I saw it right around the time it came out, which 2010 really wasn't a year that streaming like that was kind of pre-streaming, right? Yeah, so, so I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theaters. This might be one of, maybe not. Maybe I shouldn't get ahead of myself here. And like, I should actually spend like a minute thinking this through. But this very well could be one of the first movies that we've talked about where we all saw it when it very first came out and are now revisiting it. That's so fascinating to me. Um, I remember, I think I had been visiting my family in Arizona and was getting text messages from my friends being like, hey, did you see Inception? We all went to see it without you as a huge group. And we loved it. There's so many questions and everybody's so confused. You need to see it as soon as you can. And I would remember being like, the FOMO was so real. So as soon as I got home, I went, I immediately went to go see it with my mom and my mom, oh, the poor thing. I have dragged my mother through 
it's so much to see so many things and she's just like barely hanging on um (laughs) we left the theater and she was like what did I just watch and why did I do it but meanwhile I was like that was cool and I have like a lot of opinions about I had none but I wanted to be kind of cool about it uh so (laughs) which I think is like perhaps one of the reasons why uh I had to revisit this movie and actually like think about it and form my own opinions. Um, Ooh, a good theme would be movies. We drag our parents to, uh, (laughs) Pokemon, the movie 2000. I love that movie so much. Um, anyway, (laughs) moving on. Um, so inception for those of you who are uninitiated here, inception, came out in 2010, directed and written by Christopher Nolan, stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Ken uh, Watanabe, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Marion Cotillard, Tom Hardy, Elliot Page, Killian Murphy, and more. Budget, $160 million, made in the box office, uh, $837 million. So uh, big success, a lot of money. And synopsis, I stole this from Rotten Tomatoes. I actually didn't really like this that much, but like whatever, I was not writing my own. Uh, so Dom Cobb is a thief with a rare ability to enter people's dreams and steal secrets from their subconscious. His skill has made him a hot commodity in the world of corporate, corporate espionage, but has also cost him everything he loves. Cobb gets a chance at redemption when he is offered a seemingly impossible task, plant an idea in someone's mind. If he succeeds, it will be the perfect crime, but a dangerous enemy anticipates Cobb's every move hmm. if that's not something to really grab your attention and have you talking for 12 years then i don't know what it is um so we've all seen it anyone dislike this movie immediately when they saw it back in the day definitely not i recall being really wowed by like all the visual effects and and having then the the knowledge that I would have to unpack the movie and have to see it a few more times before I really had any proper understanding of what exactly was going on. But that didn't take away anything from it, at least in the first watch. But then I felt uh, kind, of, kind of like Connor, diminished returns every time I revisited it and found more of that explained at the time. But now I feel differently about it. So, uh, but yeah, I guess the uh, first time, yeah, I, I, thought it was, I thought it was really good. Yeah, I think like what you mentioned, Dave, when you see it for the first time, you're like, "Ooh, I didn't quite understand all of it, but this is definitely rich material to return to. So I can once I can pull all the pieces together and finally understand what's going on in the plot. But I feel like this is the kind of movie that might not stand the test of time because upon rewatching, you're like, there are so many plot holes that I can't put together. And that's the movie's fault. That's not on me. But I remember, yeah, I saw it and the visuals are amazing. Like some iconic scenes and iconic Nolan moments. And it's like, it's fun to see like a all-star ensemble cast looking great, great outfit, you know, just traversing the world. So it kind of just checked those boxes. But then I had, before we had chosen this, um, theme and Sam, before you had picked Inception, I had rewatched this movie within the past year and was like, oh, <laughs> not as fun as I remembered. I just remembered this movie being so fun. 
I think not as fun as you remember is a great way to kind of sum up how I feel about Inception, where I, th- I mean, it was a phenomenal theater experience. It was like just a fun movie to see with people. I mean, Nolan does the big screen, you know, almost better. Just fen- he's a phenomenal director um, visually and like presenting something that needs to be seen on screen. I also saw this movie at the Tuttleman at the Franklin Institute. So for folks who aren't from Philly or have been there, enormous giant screen that takes up your whole field of vision. And so Inception was really impressive on just like the biggest screen that a movie could be projected on. So definitely a looker, but as you go through, I think as time goes on and you revisit it and think about it, definitely some of that shine for me fades away. Yeah. I think that this movie is very, awe inspiring like when you first see it there are scenes that happen that even to this day i'm still like damn the way that they filmed that the way that they had to choreograph and they had to act all of that that is wild and i think that sometimes the bells and whistles can be a little bit more distracting and so i i think for for me that's why when I saw it the first time in theaters and then probably for, for the next couple of years, because I, I would say that this is a movie that I return to frequently. Uh, I still was really taken by all of those things. And it wasn't probably until more recently that I started taking, probably with the podcast, honestly, that I started taking a more critical eye to it and being like, um, actually, like, I don't know if I like this so much anymore. Plus like also something happens where once once one too many people try to explain something to me that I don't think needs to be explained, I get very mad. And I think that started to happen with Inception. And I was like, you know what? Fuck this movie and fuck Chris Nolan and all this other stuff. So um, some things might be this movie's fault. Some things might not be. I will admit that at the top right here. But I think for me that the the biggest the, the two biggest reasons why this movie has gone from a i love it to eh is one uh, the, the biggest thing for me is definitely um, you've got a heist movie and then you have this subplot of Cobb and his dead wife and it's not good there's no real reason to have it other than establishing Cobb has tried Inception before. I remember that element of the movie being so powerful. Like I feel like that's what also I re- thought about when I was rewatching it. I was like the whole plot element about like the whole Marianne Cotillard, like the dead pl- wife plot. I would, it was it felt to me kind of just like laughable when I was rewatching it. And I was also remembering how moved I was by that, all those scenes when I first watched it. And I was like, what happened? Am I just becoming cynical and can't just fall into like this character sort of mourning for the loss of his wife? But I don't know. It was interesting um, watching this movie after watching four heist movies a couple months ago or maybe even half a year ago at this point, whenever that was, Heist Month. (laughs) Yeah, that's a while Um, ago, but who knows? (laughs) Is that this movie functions really well in a lot of ways as a heist movie. Um, One that I think is very inventive with like 
you're stealing people's thoughts and um, the way it looks and it's executed and explained. I think the heist elements work really well. And I think that was like a nice surprise. Like, oh, wow, this part of the movie really shines more than I kind of gave it credit for or really thought deeply about last time um, watching it when it came out in theaters. And then the like Mal subplot and eventually becomes like really the main driving force of Cobb's like character. Like it's a critically important part of who he is and how the mission succeeds or will it fail and such a cool idea of like a part of repressed part of your subconscious can infiltrate operations is like a really cool idea but it just uh just detracts it just takes away i think from the film and just really bogs it down with just so many scenes kind of devoted to it and i couldn't watching it couldn't quite pick apart what i would change kind of right away or but it just really drags down what could be a really exciting heist movie and i was thinking of logan lucky how that movie just goes and goes and goes and goes um and doesn't really feel bogged down like i think the back half of inception does it almost feels like you get one opportunity to do the oh she's dead you didn't actually see her you saw his subconscious's projection of her i think you get one once maybe twice of the that kind of like shock and awe and then after that it it wears off and you realize oh well there's actually like not much to it still though like even even if you're watching this for the first time and you're like yeah like that's a really big character motivation or you know character problem or flaw or whatever the hell um, it's still just boring and not very good. I do love the idea of Cobb creating this, um, like elevator, elevator of hell for himself, essentially, where all of these memories that he forgets, that is really cool and rad, but it's just, I don't know. It just does nothing. It's too much about man pain in a way that like no one needs and uh, it's it's disappointing every time I watch it and really wastes some precious time and talent. It's it's a character that you could easily write out of this movie altogether by finding other routes to explore other characters. Um, like, I mean, uh, the one actually, Sam, that you bring up at the onset is that he, that he has incepted someone before. And I hadn't thought of that because obviously, you know, uh, I mean, obviously it's in the movie and he does that to her to disastrous results. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like, Beyond that, all um, you could find replacements for all those other scenarios. Like instead of him having been sought in 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 an extradition deal because of a murder, which wouldn't be a federal charge, uh, <laughs> he uh, can't return to the to his kids. Instead, maybe he's a single father and it's an espionage charge. Like you could fix it that way. Uh, instead of him, his like subconscious uh, manifestations and uh, and projections being antagonistic forces within this world that are beyond the control of like the architect. Maybe they could be the architect's problems themselves. And then we actually learn something about Elliot Page's character. Um, but instead, yeah, it just opts for, I, I, I guess, Christine, yeah, what, what to me at the time really translated as like a lot of depth, uh, but now uh, translates to me as kind of surfacy and superficial kind of schmaltz applied to it with a dark undertone as far as the implications of the character. So on the whole, yeah, I, I, I'm not crazy about that subplot at all. And I remember back in the day when people were like, and her name is Maul, and in French that means bad. <laughs> like, I vividly remember the discourse <laughs> on message boards about that. So, uh, like, 
the pain is real for all of us. And Dave, I'm so glad that you offered up suggestions on how to fix this. Um, and, and something you said was, how about have it be an espionage charge? Like I, I cannot get over the fact that he can't go back to the United States because of a supposed like murder that like could easily probably have been shown like that then actually uh, he didn't do that you know like just probably find any type of security footage maybe do some type of like credit card check on his wife literally anything Especially because, yeah, yeah, the this scenario is that during their as he's recounting how he lost his wife, he, they went and explored Inception or not Inception, the the subconscious world through the dream thing, uh, and she kind of unraveled because of an idea that he incepted, questioning her reality, and that drove her to suicide uh, on their anniversary when they typically go to the same hotel, but. Leonardo DiCaprio walks into this hotel room. It's like thrown apart. It's all like disheveled and like there's glass strewn about everywhere and it's a mess. And then he looks out the window and she's on a ledge across from him. So like, did they rent two rooms? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What the hell? And it has to be because we see the room. We see it in, in several different memories. So like, what the hell here? And yes, it's a nice place, so I'm sure they're giving people privacy, but I'm also sure they have fucking cameras around somewhere. Um, so like, I I don't know. And and also, yeah, she falls out of a window across from where he was. So like, what? <laughs> yeah. And like, just let it go to trial and you would be found not guilty. Just, just let it happen. And I think the fact that we're all kind of so hung up on this point is like how strong the heist dream sequences and like ideas are. We're not questioning the logic of people going asleep and entering each other's dreams to steal information. Like we're not at all questioning that part. Maybe we will, but like the first thing we're hung up on is like just the logic of the emotional stakes for our main character, which is like such a fundamental flaw in the screenplay that it's, Mm. I guess uh, maybe it started from the idea of Oh, well, we need some way for <clears throat> Cobb to like, oh, this is such a dangerous mission. How can we get him to agree to this? Money's a kind of not great motivation. Oh, he wants to see his kids again. Maybe. I don't know. That's a, that's a really great point you bring up, Connor, because it's it's like the movie doesn't trust itself to be able to delve into the complexities of what it means to enter someone's subconscious or like utilize dream manipulation and uh, uh, yeah concept of inception to do things like you know take down your business competitor and all, all of these sort of heist like formulas it's like oh we need to explain to the audience that using these types of techniques is complicated and could take a person like um could have a personal toll uh, or take take a toll uh, on someone's psyche and uh that there are personal consequences to to like engaging in this type of work and it's like no there you don't need this whole as you guys were saying you don't need this entire other subplot to explore that i think dave brought up why not present that in how he relates to other characters and things like that as opposed to the the dead wife subplot which also reminds me that shutter island came out in around the same time that this movie did. And that was like, and so I think there was always a, oh, I think there was a period where other people were kind of like, so which movie does like the, like 
which movie ends with the dead wife and which movie do we already know that he has a dead wife and how is Leo involved in this? So I feel like maybe those two movies canceled each other out and people were done with the Leo dead wife subplot. That's oh. that's my new band name. Illusionist <laughs> to the prestige. <laughs> no, Leo dead wife subplot. <laughs> or Leo dead wife. <laughs> Um, I, that's the thing that Sam, you've got in your notes here too about just how uh, women in the in this this world are, are treated and written, and yeah, I think there's a lot of problems with that because Nolan, I think, for for all his his machinations, it, he builds a great schematic. He gives himself great parameters and really strict rules to work in that shape his universe through creative limitation, and uh, he's one of the best at that giving himself these hurdles to go over but in doing so i think he underbakes a lot of a lot of other important elements and i think that his he has a real weakness when it comes to writing characters who are women across his filmography for the most part in, in insomnia there's some pretty strong stuff but he, he's used the girlfriend in a fridge trope many times it's kind of on full display and it's nadir here um, Elliot Page's character and, and proof of this is like I guess how good the movie is ultimately in spite of itself uh, I think like Chris Nolan gets in the way of this being a great Chris Nolan movie like a truly great one uh, because like I walked away from this one thinking early on like the first few times I saw it uh, man Elliot Page really turns in a really half-assed performance that's unconvincing and bad and it's ultimately a fine performance it's just a character that's not written well it's underwritten yeah completely I think he uses like he uses character like especially women characters as devices instead of like fully fleshing mm -hmm. out who they are like as much as uh i love the prestige ultimately um both jo uh, scarlett johansson and rebecca hall's characters are used as devices to explain what's going on with the you know main characters and the also and, dead wife <laughs> and another dead wife so many dead wives and memento yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. dark knight oh my god it's almost like he doesn't like women or something you know it's almost well he can't i, I mean think in, he can't write them is the problem if that's a can like a continuous criticism then you learn how to do better if you care but if you don't care then you just continue to be chris nolan and you continue to write women the way that chris nolan writes women the thing is is i well in uh interstellar which i will stand by till the end of time i think listeners already know that how his, appropriate <laughs> his attempt his attempt i think it may be uh, correcting maybe some underbaked women characters before is to really center a lot of the plot around its women characters in Interstellar. However, still so, so many of those characters are underwritten. I think it's just that Nolan doesn't, he's more concerned about the mechanics of his story and creating really amazing visual spectacle. I don't think he really writes characters well maybe at all i would say minus memento i would say minus memento because mm. that is a character study essentially and it's really smart and focused on a very like a handful of characters which is still very device or like cool 
backwards plot and everything, but I just don't think he can write characters <laughs> that like operate as humans. Insomnia was a good one, but I believe that that was adapted. Did he do the remake? Yeah, so that's uh, I, that's a remake of an. Yeah. So it's he either has to take screenplays that have already been written or take history because love Dunkirk, <laughs> but I think we've talked about this before. Anyhow, there, oh, a single woman in Dunkirk. I I don't. I mean, it's a yeah, like I, I don't, it doesn't not, need. It. It's not like a historical thing. It doesn't need to have women. Which, by contrast, I mean, this movie has one one woman, one one woman that's an actual character, one that's a projection of a man's image of a woman, and one that is Tom Hardy's sexy lady disguise. Oh my god, I forgot. So it actually only has one woman character in the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, yeah, he just needs to get somebody else to write his dialogue and maybe his like the contours of his character i don't know what, what's interesting about kind of thinking about all this is jonah nolan his brother who has written co-written many movies with nolan not inception that's what i was looking up only chris nolan gets writing credit for inception um him and his uh jonah nolan and his wife lisa joy nolan uh wrote westworld which has some really fantastic female characters um, a lot of really awesome ladies in that show. And so I wonder, like, I don't know. I, I think maybe that's an example of, like, outside influence helping to, like, flesh out, fully flesh out characters. And also Westworld's a TV show, so that's, like, writing for that's a little different than a movie. You have more time. But um, so I think it's interesting that when Jonah Nolan's with somebody else, we get really well-rounded characters in this. But at least Westworld season one is absolutely stellar. Well, okay. So, you know, the the big reasons I had of, of liking Inception less and less is the the mall subplot and then just terrible representation of female characters. But it sounds like I'm not the only one who's had these diminished returns. So, why else does this movie lose a little bit of steam over the years? At least for you. I honestly think everything else about it's pretty great. <laughs> At least this go around, like I, the whole time I was like so critical of like, and I realize why now it's actually because we've done our heist month that my former criticisms of this would be things like, you know, because I wasn't exposed to a whole lot of heist movies before developing that prejudice uh, for no reason. Um, it's like they're the best of the best brought together as a team. So every problem has a solution. Tom Hardy's a handsome sneak so he can infiltrate Cillian Murphy's corporate inner sanctum and learn to impersonate a guy. Uh, we need a powerful sedative that you can be woken from at a moment's notice. No sweat. Uh, Dalip Rouse got a formula. But Cillian Murphy will have to be asleep for 10 hours on a specific airline. Ken Watanabe's like, no shit. He takes the longest flight on Earth all the time. And I bought the airline. It's like in the past, I was like, God, that's such bad writing. But I was wrong because that's good heist movie writing. So because every character serves a function in advancing their broader plan, uh, on the whole, I'm still not sold on that like structure as a genre, but I, I think it plays out really well here. And I think all the stuff that it takes like the first hour to be like a user manual of how this world works, like a, basically a schematic so that you can understand what how each individual part is going to come into function later uh, with multiple rewatches and piecing the movie together is really interesting and really satisfying. And I don't find... I, I can't I can't find a lot of I found maybe I think two plot holes in this movie at all. Uh because everything else I felt was explained with 
kind of like drum type drum type precision. So I'm interested to see what other folks think the plot holes are, if any, or yeah, what else they think uh, drags this movie down. You make a great distinction between a plot hole and elements of a complicated movie that I think I wasn't paying attention enough to be able to understand. So I misused the word plot or the idea of a plot hole. And I think it was just my second watching, not paying attention or being encouraged to pay attention enough to put everything together or, or wanting or caring to. And that might, that might be on me, but it also might be, some pacing issues of this movie. I think if you feel that way, then yeah, the movie, it's the movie's fault because it is really demanding. And if you're if you're not up to the task for it, I don't think it's an audience member problem. I think it's, it depends on everyone's individual temperament and patience, but I think this movie is really demanding. So if it loses people. I think I, I was really invested in, as you said, Dave, the schematics of this world and how entering each level operates and, you know, the kicks and all that, which I probably still don't understand. But uh, I think pacing wise, once they they got to the snow fortress, I felt like I had learned everything I needed about this world. And I had sort of reached my capacity, full capacity to care about these characters. And I was like, oh, we have a whole nother level. Like, I don't think I can play this video game anymore. I think I need to go like do something else. And so I think that was really what, in addition, like in addition to the mouse subplot that I didn't give a shit about, the third snow fortress, I was like, I am ready for this movie to kind of be tied up. (laughs) I think for me, it kind of, I lost the thread of why we're keep going down. Like it gets so complex that we're, I feel like for me drifted away from the idea of like, we have to have Cillian Murphy have a moment with his father. So that way he will convince himself to sell off portions of the company. Like, I think that by the time you get to the snow fortress, it's like, I was with the, all the mouse. That's when mouse subplots like in the full gear and you're cutting in every other scene. Really, like every beat is beat with the third level, beat with Mal, beat with the third level, beat with, is at least how I remember it feeling, you know, watching it a couple of days ago. And so I just think it really like a good, not even a great screenplay, a good screenplay at that moment, that third act would bring these different pieces together. And it makes sense in an ensemble movie that you're peeling away characters and like, oh, Joseph, you know, the the guy who has all the formulas. Okay, he's doing the kick on the first level. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has to stay back to the kick on the second level. So you're peeling characters away to focus on really the main emotional thrust of the film. And that just gets lost on this third level. And I think... I kind of forget that Cillian Murphy's in it when he, but he has really the, the second biggest emotional crux of the film is the moment with him and his father who you kind of forget about. And that's supposed to be a really heart wrenching moment where he has, he's re remembering or like re like they're fucking with how he remembers his father dying and this perception of his father. And it just felt totally flat for me and felt very like ham fisted so interesting that you bring up the father element to that layer uh and Killian Murphy's like whole like familial situation because I think once again that is Nolan trying to glom on 
some familial dynamics that he thinks will infuse the movie with even more complexity and emotional weight when really it cheapens what el- whatever else is going on. And if they eliminated those things, as you guys have already been saying, and streamlined the heist plot and the sort of forward moving momentum, maybe we wouldn't have like emotional moments, but it would it be in service of keeping the pacing of the plot exciting and dynamic instead of slowing it down with, uh, yeah. I'd have to disagree on that front because I do think that scene is tied to the heist narrative. They need this to be an emotionally resonant and impactful moment for him. And if that wasn't included, then the heist has failed. That's true. Which also begs the question at the end of this whole thing, this is a bit of a plot hole. When they're back on the plane and uh, everyone wakes up, Ken Watanabe's character, Saito, is basically immediately like, oh, what a dream. I'm going to go ahead and make that call for you, Leo, so that we can land and you can return to your life. How does he know it worked? Because <laughs> like Cillian Murphy never says anything about it having worked. And he actually missed out on a lot of what was going on because he was down in the limbo instead of experiencing it with everyone. So how does he know that worked at all? <laughs> and why does he, I don't know, I guess it's just the promise of following through. It doesn't really matter, but it is like, wait, what? Going back to your point, Dave, about the like actual, like the plot of the heist, like on paper for me, like that makes sense. It's a really great conclusion. But the mal, as we keep the mal problem, as we keep bringing up, I think really derails that emotional intensity for me and like the emotional importance of that moment. Because I've just seen 25 minutes of this is she going to jump off the building or isn't she? We know she kills herself. Like it's just for me, it just took the wind out of the sails of the movie. When I get to that point, I'm like, okay, but I guess he's in limbo. Like it's just, I, I don't know. I agree. It would. It, like the entirety of the movie, would have more power without that subplot. (laughs) Yeah, I think that, first of all, I love that this is a heist movie where we leave something behind rather than like really taking something. It's, I'm planting an idea and you keep it, goodbye, have it, this is for you. Um, That's like, I think maybe my favorite kind of heist. Um, But something, and like, okay, the, the mall subplot is gone. She's gone. And now we just have this heist movie. I still think that, um, and and I would say that this is a criticism of Nolan just in general, is that he thinks his movies are smarter than they actually are. Or at the very least, he thinks that like his material is smarter than the audience is. And so there are some moments where I think like, I don't need this to be explained 6,000 times. I don't need it to be explained that way. Um, and explaining this way actually makes it more confusing and, and, and I don't need it. Um, and so I think that there's a little bit of that happening in some areas. It's like, I, I wish they would cut it from here and add it there so I could have something that's a little bit... <sighs> That, that flows a little bit better, but like ultimately, once you get rid of Maul, I think the movie is like 45% better. Um, and, and, and Dave, like you said, it kind of is hard to find more problems with it <laughs> once you kind of take care of that. Um, however, I think that it's okay to still have questions about this movie because that, that you know, that means that I guess 
Nolan did a good job of creating this universe and creating the, an idea of a dream heist, right? Like, how does limbo work? How do you get there? I think it's okay to have these questions and it doesn't necessarily make a bad film. Um, it just means you want more. And, and like, what better compliment could there be than wanting more of something? Yeah, I think it does a good job of explaining a lot of things too. But yeah, if it leaves you with questions and brings you back to it, which this film kind of demands. I mean, it's it's not the sort of thing that... If the, I, I would suggest that most people probably wouldn't watch this movie and walk away saying like, I get exactly what happened there. Um, which which is, I think, by design. I think it's it's an interesting, and, and it invites you to revisit it in order to kind of more accurately piece the things together. And I think that that for me had diminished returns for a while only because there were a lot of things that felt disconnected or incomplete as far as the technical aspects of the plot. Uh, but now watching it and really, really paying deep attention to it this time, I think it answers most of the questions that I had, uh, except for one one big question, one big plot hole that I, I wanted to bring across to the group, unless anyone else has a really glaring one. Not really. So here's the question. It's established that in this reality, the the dream level above physically, the physical reality of that affects the level that below. So like, for example, in Yosef's dream in level one, uh, the van with Arthur and the team flips, which shifts level two, the hotel, uh, and shifts its gravity because Arthur is having a dream in the van that's flipping over one level above. But then when we go one level deeper into the snow fortress, uh, which is uh, Ames's dream, who is asleep in this now shifting hotel, the gravity of that third level isn't messed up, even though the level above it has been affected by the one above it. That, that, that should have a consistent trickle down that should affect all of those if the active dreamer in the level above is experiencing zero gravity. So I think that might be the only actual plot hole I found. What creates the... The avalanche. What's responsible for that? I cannot remember. Is it because oh, it's not supposed that maybe? to happen? Was that the elevator exploding to as the kick? And since there's such a delay on the third level, or was the was the elevator kick that Arthur did later? That, I don't, mm, shit, I don't remember. I don't think the avalanche was supposed to happen. Yeah. So. So is that the rotating? Is it the, did that get caused by? And maybe the because rotation? it's physically like you know it's it's faster in this sub dream level versus slower, so maybe it's like it affects it in different ways in that sense. I don't know. It feels to me a little bit like a plot hole if the gravity on one is affected and the other it's not. But I, I, I don't know. I tried really hard to find plot holes this time, and another one was um, that I thought was when uh, Sato is shot in the first dream level. And it's established that they have this serum that though it causes deep sedation, it still has inner ear function as a as a trigger to wake you up if necessary. So like why on the plane don't they just shove uh, Sato over and wake him up from that first dream level instead of having to worry about him falling into limbo? I guess who would push him? Because I guess could if they wake, if somebody woke up, could they go back in again with a different, because they all we see in the movie, they all go to sleep at the same time if multiple people are entering, right? Yeah, I mean, he might not need to re-enter. I guess he's just out of the game then. But but then, who would wake him? 
That that's a good question. Maybe one of the stewardesses, I guess, you know, because they bought out he bought the airline. Uh, but at the same time, how would they know that he needed it? So yeah, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Also, I think that you know something the movie makes very clear is that time works differently um, when you're so like heavily sedated. So what is it? A week, the first level down. The second one is what the hell? Like a couple months, and then the other one is like ten years. Yes, that's true, but it just feels like everything in the the snow hospital level is happening at like like a hundred times speed, and the van is just slowly, slowly. I swear to God, it like reverses up at one point to like continue falling down. <laughs> it's it's a little comical, looks, but it looked so good. I like I love all all of the shots of the van. I, like it, it looks, it looks awesome. So maybe just it looks awesome is a reason for some cho- like screenplay choices, especially in a Nolan movie, <laughs> which I'm happy. Like, it's like his skill is as, you know, as Dave said, a really interesting schematics, but also just making things look really cool. And sometimes that's all I really need from a movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are like plenty of unbelievable scenes. Like we've talked about the hotel scene where it's flipping and they're fighting as it's flipping and moving. That is incredible. I also think that there are several very subtle scenes that really kick ass. Dave, I I told you this earlier today, but um, in the, the first level down, when Eames is getting ready to transform into, um, Killian Murphy's like uncle. Um, you watch the uncle happen in the mirror reflection, and it's still Tom Hardy that we're seeing. And then it switches, and then you see Tom Hardy in the mirror reflection, and you've got the uncle. That is something that like the attention to detail is really beautiful. And it happens panel by panel of the the vanity mirror. It doesn't happen all at once. So I like that kind of shit. I really love. But you know what? There's one last thing, and I don't want to like belabor this, and I'm sorry, but one last beef I have, and um, you know, maybe we can like talk this out so I don't have to have this beef anymore. I can finally cook it and be done with it. It's why, okay, you have the dreamer and then you have the mark, right? And the mark populates the dream with their subconscious. I do not understand why the dreamer changing things would activate that subconscious and like make them really agitated and then the subconscious would attack the dreamer i don't know if y'all remember your dreams i do there are crazy shit happens in my dream all the time and i just go okay and i accept it and i move on i just i i understand that christopher nolan has said it to be so that this happens but it just doesn't make sense to me. You know what I mean? The one thing is that in the universe of this world where dream hacking, for lack of a better term, exists, it, it makes mention that uh, Cillian Murphy's character, Fisher, I believe, is um, is someone trained. who's aware of this. And yeah, is, is trained, like sleep trained, so that their sleeping subconscious can be more attuned to paying attention to potential hacking and interruption and fakery 
uh, it, it kind of ultimately is kind of the only active stake in the movie in a lot of ways, other than like the countdown for the the synchroni- synchronization of the kicks to return to the plane and waking reality. The only real escalating stakes are either Maul as um, a, a subconscious projection herself or the subconscious pro- trained subconscious projections becoming more aware of the interruption and therefore becoming more aggressive at each level. So I think it, it, it's just basically a device for, for raising stakes. And it's almost similar in a lot of ways. This movie borrows a lot from The Matrix. Uh, is is comparable to like the agent idea where like at any given time, you know, if if they detect us, our surroundings can become the enemy. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I guess I just don't like it. And then also, you know, once you get to Eames's level, I think like all bets are off. Like it's very clear that the subconscious is attacking and it's like, it's a bond movie by then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's full force. So I don't, again, I don't fucking understand why uh, Ariadne who has, who is the architect and who has joined or, or even at this point Eames doesn't create a shorter shortcut to get to the fucking hospital, to get Fisher, to get there. I just don't understand, like, why they couldn't do that. Because how... There comes a point where I feel like you can't raise the stakes any higher because they're already pretty fucking high. They're, like, at high alert, you know? So, I don't know. I'm just, I just... I get it, but I don't like it. I don't think I have a great answer for that one. <laughs> uh, except that yeah, I agree. Why? Why insert this, like... Bond movie I don't care about just because you want to have awesome. a snow level. <laughs> but it's is it awesome? But yes, is it? It is. That last that last sequence is awesome. That I snow thing, it. like I, I, I'm I'm really sold. I'm not a Bond fan, but like e- even with it being so blatantly reminiscent of Bond, it's just it's so riveting the way that it's shot. I mean, you know, hand Chris Nolan an action spectacle and he will nail the scene. And I think he does with these as well, especially accentuated by and we haven't really gushed about him yet as he deserves in this movie uh, tom hardy yeah. it felt like a mad max movie on the snow like it's like it's watching him kick ass in the snow i love it yeah it looks really cool but i think as connor pointed out it's being diluted with other stuff like why not oh, just sure. showcase the excitement of that sequence like that entire level and the sequence and yeah, as we said, shave some other stuff off that's unnecessary because yeah, I mean, as I, like, by the time I got to the snow plot, I was exhausted and could not fully appreciate what was going on, which maybe means that we need to just watch Nolan movies as like, no, actually I'm not going to make sweeping accusations. I <laughs> fucking love a lot of Christopher Nolan. Actually, I love more of his movies than not. So I'm not going to make any sweeping accusations his like toward, but I think this movie might be like a highlight reel. Like the best way to watch it might be in a highlight reel. Hmm. Controversial opinion. <laughs> what, what it reminds me of is kind of like how Star Wars movies from episode four through episode one added a new subplot ending. Because New Hope, it's just Luke going after the Death Star Empire, you got to Return of the Jedi. You have three plots happening at the very end of the movie. Phantom Menace, you have four things happening. So for me, it's like you have the van falling kind of comically 
in my opinion. Uh, a little no, cheesy. I love it. No, I love that. You got, so you, got Arthur, you got Arthur fumbling his way through the rotating uh, hotel from hell. You have Mal and Mal doing her thing in this subplot and the snow level on top of all of that. It just, I, for me, it was just too much to juggle. And like, I would have loved just to get into like, what is the snow area and like kind of enjoy that action. But the movie was just trying to juggle so much in the final 30, 40 minutes. I, in, in my opinion. I think that's what makes the the way that it captures the importance of the kick, the simultaneous the simultaneous kicks so interesting because it does have us offer these like three action set pieces and as we've established a pretty boring subplot, all cascading at different varying like frame rates and speeds and angles and pitches and and implied severity and like urgency. So I think it's I don't know I I, I thought toward the end when it does juggle those things it juggles them extremely well. Uh, for me personally. And also I think the synchronized kick makes it really interesting because I finally, I finally understand, I think, uh, like the way that the kick works is like you can kick up to another level at any given time, as long as you're synced with the level above. But the crucial thing is being synced with the first dream level and syncing that with the physical, uh, real world, the reality where you're woken up. Which is why it creates a ticking clock when the van goes over because they have to synchronize with that kick now that it's already established. And it creates a countdown at varying speeds within all the other realities, which I think visually portrayed by the, again, like so slowly falling van, Sam, that you're right. It's almost crawling back upward, um, matched with like a slow-mo zero gravity fight, matched with like a regular speed, like snow speed chase. It's like, I, I think it all comes together aside from, yeah, the, the thing that makes it sluggish, the mall subplot, every action set piece intermingled, I think makes for an awesome third act for this movie. Yeah. I have to say the snow level is my favorite. I do think that it is because I have a lot of loyalty to Tom Hardy. I think that he has some of the best parts in this movie. Um, I mean, the iconic, like, don't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling, when he brings out the book, whatever, like the rocket launcher, essentially. In that <laughs> um, I I think that he, he, for me, is definitely the standout in this film. And I feel like it makes a lot of sense, like why his career just kind of like skyrocketed after Inception. I think people like really were like oh like look at this charismatic dude he's gorgeous and he's a good actor and he can like he can save scenes that were like eh and make him really good so yeah I still think I have a lot of questions about the kicks um but I also don't think that it matters and I'm totally okay <laughs> with that um but one thing I want to ask you folks before we put a pin in this discussion is I remember when Inception first came out and everybody on the message boards was obsessed with one thing in particular, and it was the totem at the end of the movie. Does it stop spinning or does it continue to spin? So I guess the best way to end this is by figuring out, is it actually reality? Does it spin or does it stop? What do we think? I remember watching the film for the first time and really hating descending. Because I was like, oh, we've got a cool ride. Like, oh, I don't want this ambiguous ending. This movie's already asked. Like, I, I don't need one more question on top. But watching it this time, I actually really loved how it ended. I thought it ended such, I was the perfect cherry on top for uh, Cobb's journey and kind of what we were watching for the past two and a half hours. 
And I think it, I was at peace with not giving a shit if it was real or not, because I was invested in Cobb's belief in if it was real or not. Like, I think that really, like, his accepting it, which I didn't really care about before. I was like, I want to know the actual truth. But I think this just speaks to how I you know, have watched just movies and have grown and thinking about movies since 2010. Um, really appreciated seeing that moment through Cobb's eyes instead of through the writer's eye or like, you know, through like just um, like a third person. eye, I guess is how I would explain it. So I don't really care if it was real or not. Cobb thinks it's real. And I think that works for me. And I just love the little waggle at the end and then cut the black. Like, I think that's a great, it's a really well-paced final like minute. Uh, I, I imagined an alternate ending to this movie today <laughs> wherein, um, just says at the end, it, it holds on it. And we do definitively see the little top drop and it falls over, proving that, yes, indeed, Dom Cobb has returned to reality and is reunited with his children. But then Michael Caine, their grandfather, walks into frame and he's just like, I remember when that son of a bitch incepted my daughter and drove her mad. I'm going to show him. And then he just spins it and it walks out of frame. <laughs> and then we get the iconic Hans Zimmer. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> you need to write nolan be like hey for the next i don't know what technology can this it can't be released on blu-ray like what's the next thing that's like ooh, see this movie released on ellipses see the director's cut in your dreams oh yes oh my god director <laughs> director's cut incepted yes oh my god it's like the Google Glass thing. It's like in your eyeball. <laughs> that is an That's amazing. That's the idea of Michael Caine getting his revenge. That is an amazing director's cut rollout. I we need to write Nolan. Be like, hey, we need to get the technology to get this movie in people's brain, in people's dreams. Yeah, I agree with Connor. I I I, I like the ambiguity, ambiguity at the end. I know That's we've it. been really hard on um, this on. No fault of Marion Cotillard at all of like her role in this film and what how Nolan wrote it and how it was executed. I do really love how Cobb incepted her by finally finding the like house where she kept like the toy, the dollhouse where she kept all her like biggest fears, taking what because we learn earlier that the the spinning top was her totem, putting it in her brain safe and spinning it and closing it. I thought that was a really great way to visualize how to in, how he incepted Maul that she can never accept that she's actually in reality. I thought that was a really brilliant moment in that we've talked about the death by now, but in that in that subplot that does not work on many levels. I thought that level worked really well in making the top. You kind of forget about it and then making it an incredibly relevant part of um, something that he did. I mean, Connor, I think, you know, you've done a really good job of kind of un like bringing us back to why this movie still matters. Like, yes, it's become a bit of a dud for me. However, the cultural significance of this movie will never go away. Everyone will always go, we have to go deeper and then do the bong. So that's <laughs> not going anywhere. <laughs> and the it's amount of legacy. I know, and the amount of things that have done, like how have have mimicked this and have copied it, it, you know, this is forever, forever ingrained in all of us, and and I think for a good reason. I I do think that there's still a lot to be learned and had from this film. Um, so that's Inception, folks. 
I know my brain hurts and only rightly so after talking about this film. Um, any final words we want to say about Inception? Remember when we went from talking about no Chris Nolan movies for three years and then did two almost back to back? I kind of miss those days. <laughs> I'm just reading now that Nolan initially wanted Inception to be a horror movie instead of a yeah. heist movie. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. That's it. I want to see that cut. I mean, it, all of it, the concepts are horrifying. So it probably already taps into that feel, but I'd love to see that. I'd say really quickly, uh, a correction to what I'd said earlier, which is a little bit hyperbolic, that I think um, Chris Nolan is both the problem with this movie as far as the, some of the screenwriting issues, but also he wrangled a team of really talented people that created a visual, a visually like spectacular movie with some really incredible action sequences. So on the whole, uh, I think it's, I think this is going to be a nice soft launch to our Thuds and Duds theme because I know that we are sharpening our knives and it's going to be a lot more vitriol and probably a lot more swearing in these coming episodes. So just a heads up. But I think it's interesting that this one has uh, has garnered the reaction that it has and I'm I'm glad it was the first one that we chose. And I think it's a great example of like duds can still be good movies or like have really great parts to them. I think that's, you know, when I think I think a lot about bad movies or movies that just kind of fail, it's all like, oh, it's just terrible and start to finish but inception does have a lot of great parts and i think it's worth revisiting um for sure i wouldn't say this is a bad movie as like Mm -hmm. sam was saying like this movie has uh will have does have a legacy and i think will be an iconic movie for a very long time but no one just tries to do too much fucking stuff in his (laughs) creations and yeah diminishing returns but but i guess maybe not because it yeah it is iconic who knows it certainly did not diminish return to this conversation i don't know where i was going with that whatever i'm tired y'all um it's worth re-watching inception if only just for you to see how beautiful tom hardy is and you know what beautiful. if you need more reason than that who are you what are you uh just re-watch this movie let us know how you think um i am very excited for the other movies that we have up for this month um yes dave i also agree there's going to be a lot of swearing i mean in my notes for inception i had a lot of swearing in there so i can you really did i did so i can only imagine what's going to happen next um i'm really excited so make sure you tune in next week and uh also other than tuning in next week, make sure you catch up with us on our social media. So we're at Butter With That on Instagram, Butter With That One on Twitter, and you can email us at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. What's up? And of course, we are on the Movie John Podcast Network. Check us out there and all of the other wonderful podcasts that just so happen to be on that beautiful network too. Thanks for listening. We love you. Have a good whatever. This has been a Movie John podcast.